Good evening, uh, and w welcome to the Pratt. Uh, I have the honor tonight of introducing the author. And I, I just met the author this evening, so the, the main connection that I have of any type, other than being a resident of Baltimore and frequenting the Pratt, is that I happen to be a rower. And I think I'm the only rower that Judy Cooper and Jackie Watts of the Pratt staff knew, so I got um, the, the honor of doing this. But I also have some of my uh, crewmates from the Baltimore Rowing Club are here tonight. And it's a great honor, I have to say, um, while my accomplishments on the, from a rowing perspective are nowhere near Olympic uh, or elite, um, that the author does such a terrific job of describing the process of rowing, what it's like to row, what it's like to win with a crew, that feeling you get in your stomach as you're at the start and, uh, and the flag's about to drop. Um, he just did a terrific job of, of communicating all that. And aside from that, I think those of you who also read it will find it's just a terrific story of human interest and of overcoming obstacles. And I thought it was just a terrific story and very well told. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Daniel James Brown. Thank you all very much. Um, let me start by talking about how I came to write this book because um, it's an interesting story in itself and um, I think it helps explain some of the, uh, the passion that I developed for the subject. Um, almost six years ago now, maybe it was five and a half years ago, uh, my neighbor, <clears throat> a lady I knew only as Judy at the time, came to me um, in my home after we were having a homeowners association meeting, a dreadful, awful thing, uh, where we quibbled about what color you could or couldn't paint your mailbox. Um, but when it was mercifully over, Judy came up to me, and um, she said that um, her father, who was under hospice care and in the last few weeks of his life, was living at um, her home with him. And she was reading one of my previous books to him, and he was enjoying that a lot, and he wanted to know if I would come down and, uh, and meet him. So, of course, I did. I think it was the next day. I went down, and um, I met Joe Rance, who was in his um, mid-90s, I believe, by then, and, um, and very ill, but very cogent and able to talk to me. And Joe began to talk um, first about his experience growing up during the Depression. He had a particularly poignant story to tell about his childhood during the Depression. Um, and I'll leave that to you to discover in the book, but um, it, it had a lot to do with his subsequent life. And then he began to talk about how he had started to row a crew for the University of Washington and how that had changed his life and how eventually uh, he and his crewmates had wound up representing the United States in Berlin in 1936, rowing against um, a German boat, amongst others, uh, in the Olympics uh, for a gold medal. And as Joe was telling me all this, I was just absolutely mesmerized by, by his story. And I noticed um, that from time to time as he was talking, he would tear up. And then I noticed that he would tear up 
uh, whenever um, some whenever you began to talk about one of the other boys in the boat. So I knew there was a lot of emotion there, and at the end of the um, conversation, I hadn't really gone down there looking for a for a book topic, but I just it was such a great story. So I, I just flat out said, "Joe, can I can I write a book about your life?" And he shook his head and he said, "No, you you can't write a book about my life, but." You can write a book about the boat. And at first I didn't know what he meant. I thought he meant the Husky Clipper, which was this beautiful red cedar shell uh, in which the, the boys rode uh, that Olympic race. And I didn't really write, want to write a whole book about just the shell, as gorgeous as it is. Um, but then Joe gave me to understand that what he meant was um, I could write a book about all the boys in the boat or something even more than that, really, what they had all once become some 70 years ago uh, in, in Berlin that summer. And they had become a sort of perfect thing. And um, he wanted me to try to capture that, not what he had done, but what they had all done and become together. So that's the spirit in which I, I set out to write uh, the book. Now, the climax of the story is this Olympic gold medal race in Berlin. And you know going into the book, uh, or you can quickly figure out, I think, that they, they won that race. Uh, there's not, there's not, I, I, when I first started writing the book, I realized there wasn't any way I really could do this book without you know, keeping, no way I could keep that a secret. So you know that they won the race. And... Um, I'm going to leave you to, to, to discover just how great a race it was when you read the book. Um, I, but I just wanted to tell you a little bit about how it started so you get a sense of what a dramatic thing it was. Um, that day, they were rowing on the Longer Sea, uh, just outside of Berlin, southeast of Berlin. And um, the... Um, German boat and the Italian boat, the two fascist states, had been assigned the two inside lanes, the most sheltered lanes. The British and the American boats had been assigned the outside lanes, where they had to row into the face of a very stiff, quartering headwind. Um, the British, um, rather the American stroke, uh, Don Hume, which is really the most critical oar in the boat, he sets the rhythm for the rest of the boat, uh, Don Hume was very, very ill. He'd been in bed for days and, uh, and didn't think he could row. But they, at the last minute, put him in the boat, uh, nevertheless. Uh, there were 75,000 fans there, mostly German uh, fans. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels and Hermann Göring and all the other top Nazis were arrayed on a balcony on a boathouse looking out over the race course. The Germans had won the first five rowing events that day. They'd won gold, five straight gold medals in, in rowing. And the, um, the fans were in absolute frenzy um, and were chanting Deutschland, Deutschland, Deutschland as the American boys uh, prepared to go off in the, really with a big race. The eight-oared race is always the climax of the regatta and the, the most prestigious race. Um, and then on top of everything else, uh, the American boys, when the race finally started, they didn't hear the start. They didn't see the flag go down. All they saw was the other boats start off on either side of them. And so <laughs> they wound up um, dead last. And in fact, halfway, uh, roughly halfway through the race, 
out in the middle of the longer sea in the roughest part of the water, trying to make their way through this chop. They were dead last. The Germans and the Italians were streaking down the inside lanes, pulling away from them, and it looked absolutely hopeless. And yet they won. And I'm going to leave you, as I say, to read how that happened. What's exciting and interesting is not that they won so much as how they won. The last 200 meters of that race were just absolutely extraordinary. And so I leave that to you to discover, as I say. I am going to read you an excerpt from a different race um, in a moment. At any rate, um, so the, the, the book is, um, is largely about these boys and rowing, but I want to make clear that... Um, as the introduction said, the book is really not just about rowing. It's, um, it's a bigger story than that. It's uh, a sweeping story about the human heart. It's a story about how nine boys come together to um, forge something much larger than the sum of their parts It's a story about how this one boy, Joe Rance, must learn to survive by depending only on himself, and then has to learn its exact opposite, to trust everyone else in order to succeed. It's a story about craftsmanship and grace and pride and the pursuit of the ideal. It's a story about grit and determination in the face of overwhelming odds, about punishing pain and psychological devastation and ultimate jubilation. It's a story about the American genius for defying the odds. It's a story of democratic idealism come face to face with fascist cynicism. Really in pretty stark terms on its largest level, it's a story about good and evil. And in the end, it's a story that I think helps define that whole generation of Americans, the generation who became our fathers or grandfathers or mothers or grandmothers or uncles and aunts, what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. Um, you know, the Jesse Owens story, when most people think about the 1936 Berlin Olympics, the first thing that comes to mind, and, and rightly so, is the Jesse Owens story. And it's a, a great story. It's a great story um, partly because it's one of those stories that reminds us of who we are as a people and what we value. Uh, it, it reminds us that we value equality and fairness and a level playing field and great individual achievements. And I think this story is similar. I think it reminds us of things we value as Americans. But it's not a story about an individual achievement. It's a story about a collective achievement. It's a story about what Americans can do when they literally climb into a boat and pull together. Um, you know, the generation um, that, uh, that won World War II, they were humbled by the ravages of the Depression. They learned humility from the hard times that they had. And in a very similar way, these nine boys, they were humbled by the hard times of the Depression. They were also humbled by the extraordinary demands of rowing. And that taught them humility. And that humility was the gateway through which they were able to open their hearts to one another and to trust one another and to begin to do this incredible thing that they did together. And so for me, uh, you can read and enjoy the book without buying into this metaphor at all, I think. But for me, and I didn't realize this until the book was almost written, but to me the story becomes a kind of a metaphor 
for that whole generation and what they did uh, by coming together the way that they did. So, um, I'd like to read a passage um, from the book, um, partly in order to um, remind us, well, I can't, I guess we can't, it's not really reminding because most of us weren't there in 1936. Um, it teaches us, it shows us just how popular uh, crew was in uh, the 1930s. Uh, I had no idea until I began the research for this book. But in the 1930s, crew was, it rivaled college football for popularity. A uh, hundred thousand people would turn out on for a regatta, uh, not just on the here on the East Coast, but even out in uh, Seattle on Lake Washington, eighty, ninety, sometimes a hundred thousand people would turn out for a regatta. Uh, they had observation trains that followed the course of the race. They had, you know, hundreds of ships out in the water, uh, forming a corridor through which the uh, the boats raced. Uh, uh, extraordinary oarsmen found themselves on the covers of national magazines. Uh, the New York Times and other national newspapers devoted huge coverage to rowing. Uh, regattas were broadcast coast to coast on radio networks that were still relatively new things. So um, it was enormously popular, and uh, the passage I've chosen to read is partly to give you a sense of that. Um, I have to create. I have to establish the setting because I'm going to pick it up partway through this. This is the um, summer of 1936, and it's in Poughkeepsie, New York. It's the annual uh, intercollegiate rowing Associ- association regatta, which is the de facto national championship. And to nourish their uh, dream of going to the Olympics later that summer, the boys from Washington uh, really feel they need to win this race, and they need to beat California. Uh, who was their principal rival at the time. Uh, California had twice before gone to the Olympics, had twice brought home gold medals, and uh, Al Ulbrichsen, the Washington coach, was obsessed with getting the boys from Washington to that same level. So um, it's 6 p.m. on the Hudson River. The dusk is falling. It's a four-mile race, a very long distance to row. Al Ulbrichsen, the coach, is watching the race from a, an observation train that's paralleling the race course. Um, he's a stern man, a man who does not betray his emotions. Um, he's sometimes called the dour Dane, sometimes called the man with the stone face. He's a tough coach, uh, and he, as I say, uh, has a, a sort of inscrutable way about him. He has told Bobby Mock, his coxswain, to race from behind but by no means to get more than two lengths behind at any point. And Bobby Mock, who, uh, by the way, has sort of a habit of lying to his crew about where they are on the race course in order to keep them motivated. Bobby Mock has, in fact, been holding them almost four lengths back through the first three miles. And Albrechtson is absolutely beside himself, sitting in the train watching this unfold. So let me pick it up there and give you a sense of this. On the train, Al Ulrichson had all but given up. They're too far behind, he muttered. They're overplaying their hand. We'll be lucky to finish third. Ulrichson's face was ashen. It seemed to have turned entirely to stone. 
He'd even stopped chewing his gum. In the lane nearest to him, California had powered back out in front, rowing beautifully. With a tiring field behind them and less than a mile to go, Cal was in a commanding position to win. Kai Ebright, it seemed, had somehow outwitted him again. But if anybody had outwitted Al Ulbrichsen, it was his own coxswain, the short kid with his own Phi Beta Kappa key, and now he would show his hand. Suddenly he leaned into Don Hume's face and bellowed, Give me ten hard ones for Ulbrichsen! Eight long spruce oars bowed in the water ten times. Then Mock bellowed again, Give me ten more for Pocock! Another ten enormous strokes. Then a lie. Here's California, we're on them! Ten more big ones for Mom and Dad! Very slowly the husky clipper slipped past Columbia and began to creep up, creep up on Navy in second. Someone on the boat, excuse me, someone on the train idly remarked, well, Washington's picking up. A minute later, someone else called out much more urgently, look at Washington, look at Washington, here comes Washington. On the train and on shore, all eyes shifted from the leaders to the eight white blades barely visible out in the middle of the river. Another deep guttural roar began to rise from the crowd. It seemed impossible for Washington to close the gap. They were half a mile from the finish now, still in third place, still two lengths back, but they were moving, and the way they were moving compelled immediate and absolute attention. In the boat, Mock was incandescent. Okay, now, 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 he barked. Don Hume took the stroke up to 35, then to 36, then to 37. On the starboard side, Joe Rance fell in behind him just as smooth as silk, and the boat began to swing. The bow began to rise out of the water. Washington slid past the middies as if the Navy boat were pinned to the water. Cal's coxswain, Grover Clark, glanced across the river, and for the first time since he'd left it behind at the starting line, he saw the Washington boat sweeping up on his stern. Stunned, he bellowed at his crew to pick it up, and Cal's rate climbed quickly to 38. Mock hollered at Hume to take it up another notch, and Washington went to 40. The rhythm of the California boat seemed to waver, then grow erratic. California and Washington careened into the last 500 yards, storming down the corridor of open water between the spectators' boats. People in rowboats were standing up now, risking a dunking to see what was happening. Some of the larger excursion steamers began to list toward the center of the river as people crowded their rails their rails. The roar of the crowd began to engulf the oarsmen. Boat whistles shrieked. On the float in front of Washington's shell house of Vanda May Calamar, the crew's cook waved a frying pan over her head, whooping and urging the boys on. In Washington's press car, pandemonium broke out. George Farnell of the Seattle Times shoved his press credentials into his mouth and began to devour them. Tom Bowles commenced beating a stranger on the back with his lucky old fedora. Royal Brougham was shouting, Come on, Washington, come on. Only Al Albrickson remained motionless and silent, still riveted to his seat, his eyes cold gray stones locked on the white blades out in the river. Joe Williams of the World Telegram stole a glance at him and thought, This guy has ice water in his veins. With the finish line looming ahead of him in the gathering dark, Bobby Mock screamed something inarticulate. Johnny White in the number three seat suddenly had the sensation that they were flying now, not rowing. Stubb McMillan desperately wanted to peek, to glance over toward 
lane one where he knew California would be, but he didn't dare. In number six, the crowd no- over the crowd noise, Shorty Hunt could hear someone on the radio yelling frantically. He tried to make out the words, but all he could tell was that something terribly exciting was happening. He had no idea how things stood, except that he still hadn't seen California, the California boat, fall into his field of view. He kept his eyes locked on the back of Joe Rance's neck and pulled with his whole heart. Joe had boiled everything down to one action, one continuous movement, one thought, the crew's old mantra running on through his mind like a river, hearing it over and over, not in his own voice, but in George Pocock's crisp Oxford accent, mind in boat, mind in boat, mind in boat. Then in the last 200 yards, thinking itself fell away and pain suddenly came shrieking back into the boat, descending on all of them at once, searing their legs, their arms, their shoulders, clawing at their backs, tearing at their hearts and lungs as they desperately gulped at the air. And in those last 200 yards, in an extraordinary burst of speed, rowing at 40 strokes per minute, Washington passed California. With each stroke, the boys took their rivals down by the length of another seat, and by the time the two boats crossed the line in the last vestiges of twilight, a glimmer of open water showed between the stern of the Husky Clipper and the bow of the California Clipper. In the press car, the corners of Al Ulbrichson's mouth twitched reluctantly into something vaguely resembling a smile. He resumed chewing his gum slowly and methodically, Standing next to him, George Pocock threw back his head and howled like a banshee. Tom Bowles continued to flog the back of the fellow in front of him with his old fedora. George Farnell removed the well-masticated remains of his press credentials from his mouth. In Seattle, Hazel Albrechtson and her son Al pounded the glass top of their coffee table until it shattered into dozens of pieces. Up on the automobile bridge, Mike Bogo had the distinct pleasure of setting off seven bombs in rapid succession. And in the boat, the boys pumped their fists in the dark night air. For a long while, Al Ulbrichson just sat there, staring into the darkness as fans came rushing through the car, congratulating him and slapping him on the back. When he finally stood up, reporters crowded around him, and he said simply, Well, they made it close, but they won. Then he elaborated, I guess that little runt knew what he was doing. Uh, Bobby Mock, the coxswain, was was an absolute character. By the way, the bombs on the bridge um, probably didn't mean much to you. Um, In Poughkeepsie for the regatta, they had a guy stationed up on uh, the railroad bridge near the finish line, and he would set off a number of bombs corresponding to which lane the victorious boat was in. Um, and the guy, uh, the guy in the story was this 300-pound barkeep from Poughkeepsie, Mike Bogo, uh, who said, I don't care who won, I'd just like to bust them bombs. <laughs> um, okay, so um, let me just move towards the conclusion here by saying um, I, I write books primarily because I think it's the best way in the world to learn all about something. I really enjoy peeling back the layers of the onion and discovering the absolute essential truth of a subject. And when I started writing this book, I knew precisely nothing about rowing. Um, and during the six, almost six years of research that have gone into writing it, 
um, I've had a series of revelations, large and small. Um, and I just thought I'd share a few of those with you. Not that they're earth-shattering, but just because they help define what I think's uh, interesting about the book. One revelation for me was just how utterly improbable this particular bunch of Olympians were. These were working-class kids, not really even that. These were country kids. These were kids that had grown up uh, in uh, lumber towns and on dairy farms and on fishing boats in the Pacific Northwest. They'd grown strong um, wielding axes and pitchforks uh, and fishing gaffs. Um, And when they showed up at the University of Washington in the fall of 1933, they didn't know one end of an oar from the other. They, to get what they, where they got, to do what they did, they had to go up against um, boys, primarily from the Ivy League schools in the East, boys who were, in many cases, the sons of bankers or lawyers or titans of industry or U.S. senators or even presidents. Two of FDR's uh, boys were rowing at the time. Um, and so, and then after they they went up against these Ivy League kids who had learned to row in prep schools, uh, they had to row against kids who were little, literally aristocrats, kids from Oxford and Cambridge, uh, when they took on the British in Berlin. And then ultimately, they had to go up against this hand-selected, uh, all Aryan um, Nazi crew uh, representing Germany. So they were. It was kind of the ultimate underdog story, and I think it resonates with me a lot because of that. I also learned that rowing is extraordinarily difficult, almost brutal physically. And for those of you who row, already know that. I know it's not a revelation to you. Um, it's. It is amazing how fit one has to be to row, particularly at the level we're talking about here, an Olympic. Uh, an Olympic level. They say that racing a 2,000-meter Olympic uh, uh, race is the equivalent of uh, playing two basketball games back-to-back, but um, doing it in just uh, roughly six minutes. Pound for pound, uh, an oarsman rowing like this uh, consumes, processes as much oxygen as a thoroughbred racehorse does at a full gallop. So, It's incredibly demanding physically, but it's also very demanding mentally. Um, I was, you know, until I got involved in this, I was one of these people that drove across the Evergreen Floating Bridge in Seattle and saw the crew out there on the lake every morning at five in the morning or whatever and the sleet and the hail and thought, what idiots, why are they out there? Why would anybody do that? Um, you really do have to be mentally tough to make yourself do this in a sport where there's really not a lot of glory often. I mean, as I say, in the 30s, there was probably more glory, but um, there's, there's not a great deal of glory or financial game to be, gain to be um, uh, come from this kind of very strenuous effort. I also learned, though, that it's a very beautiful thing, both um, to watch Particularly, it was beautiful, I think, in the 30s when they were rowing in these beautiful cedar shells. Um, but there is a, a real beauty if you watch a crew out on a still lake uh, in the early morning mist. It's really, it's really very beautiful. And in, there's also, though, a sort of um, inner beauty that I, after talking to many, many uh, rowers 
and after coming to understand these nine boys very well. Um, over and over again, um, I've had rowers tell me that there's a sort of almost spiritual experience that they have sometimes out on the water and a sort of connectedness with with everything, with the water and the sky and with one another. And um, it, it, it's it's... It happens so frequently. People tell me this so frequently, and these these boys in their diaries talked about this, that um, that it really left an impression on me. And in the book, this side of of the rowing experience is personified in the person of um, George Pocock. George Pocock was a an English um, boat builder who handcrafted these beautiful cedar shells um, that. Uh, not only Washington, but basically every crew in America wound up rowing in the 30s. And he was the ultimate um, craftsman. He, he was always trying to reach for a higher level in everything he did. And he was also an expert uh, oarsman. And so he taught these boys to row to win, but to row for something higher than that, to row for the spiritual reward of rowing to row to do something as near to perfect as he could. And every chapter in the book starts off with a quote from Pocock, and to some extent they they tend to all be on that theme. I'll just read one of them that sort of sums it up. He said, It's a great art is rowing. It's It's the finest art there is. It's a symphony of motion. And when you are rowing well, why, it's nearing perfection. And when you near perfection... You're touching the divine. It touches the you of yous, which is your soul. Um, so there's that side of it. And then I just wind up by saying that the, 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 the thing that impressed me most, the revelation that, that, um, that moved me the most in the course of writing this book was just the extraordinary bond that these nine guys formed um, 75 years ago that summer. I mean, not really just that summer, through the three years that they were together, but particularly that summer of 1936. Um, Crew really demands an almost absolute surrender of the self to the common effort of moving the boat. Everybody in the boat really has to move in both physical and psychological rhythm with everyone else. Really, you have to become almost an extension of one another until you meld into this perfect thing. And that's what these boys did. They became this perfect thing that summer, and they never forgot it. For the rest of their lives, till they were very old men, they were absolutely bonded together by this experience. Um, Every 10 years, they would row on Lake Washington in front of news cameras on the anniversary of their Olympic gold medal uh, victory. But more than that, they raised their families together almost as one. They were constantly together at backyard barbecues and uh, pool parties and all kinds of things. And as very old men, when when there were only two of them left, um, Joe and Roger Morris, who was the bow man. Um, Joe and Roger would get on the phone for an hour or two at a time. And uh, I watched this happen. They would, they would say almost nothing. Um, 
maybe every five minutes they'd say something and then they'd just not say anything for a long time and then Joe would say something. And it was because they just had to be together again, you know? It was that intense a thing for them. So it, it, really, it really moved me and it left an enormous impression on me. And, um, and that's the spirit in which I tried to write the book. So that's the end of my prepared uh, comments. But um, usually um, the most interesting things come up when people ask questions. So if anybody has any questions, I'd be glad to take them. Thank you very much. Very good presentation. Thank I had you. a question. Can you tell us about the funding for the, the boat ride? Uh, how was the money raised? How much was it? And how is it different from today? I, I'm sure it's more expensive and all that. But can you tell us a little bit about that? The funding actually become, became a huge issue. Um, the, night, the, the night that the boys won the right to represent the United States, they won the, um, the, uh, the trials in Princeton, New Jersey. That about two hours after they won, uh, won that preliminary and won the right to, to go to Berlin, uh, the officials came to them, the Olympic officials came to them and said, oh, by the way, you have to pay your way. There are no Olympic funds to send you. And this was the middle of the Depression, and nobody had ever told the University of Washington um, that, that they had to come up with the money, and they just, they just didn't have it. And these boys didn't have a penny. They couldn't hardly put a meal on their table. So it was very interesting. Um, that same night, Royal Brom of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer and George Varnell of the Seattle Times and other press people that were with them in Princeton began to make phone calls back to Seattle. And phones started to ring all over Seattle that night. And by the next morning, there was an army of young people and old people out on the streets of Seattle, um, literally with cups in their hands, and also selling little plastic tag or paper tags for a quarter apiece, um, send our boys to to Berlin, and and so in the course of about forty eight hours, the citizenry of Seattle raised five thousand dollars, which is what it took to send the uh, the shell and the boys to to Berlin. So um, I you know I don't know much about current the current practice for funding uh, crews. I know basically nothing about it, but that's how it was in the 1930s. Hi, the question that I had was, um, when did you become involved with um, the story of the men, and how did you do your research, um, especially with the people who were already passed? Yeah, I got started when I, when I first met Joe Rance, um, and he began to talk about it, and then it really quickly mushroomed into an enormous research project. Um, there were only two of the boys, they were hardly boys at the time. There were only two of the gentlemen still alive at the time, and of course interviewed both of them as much as I could given their state of their health. But the reality is um, a great deal of the material from the book came from their families. All nine families came to me with boxes and boxes of letters and diaries and photographs and news clippings, and they sat down with me and spent I must have a hundred hours or more of recorded interviews that I did with the children and grandchildren of of these guys. And all of them had been nurturing this story for 70-some years when I came to them, and they just couldn't unburden themselves quickly enough. So there was an enormous amount of support and help from the families. 
And then beyond that, it was just a lot of library research, many countless hours in the library, reading microfilm news clippings from the 1930s and traditional kinds of research. And some untraditional research. The, the reality is that the Internet has changed my life as a writer a great deal. I mean, if I want to know when the sun set on the Hudson River the night of this um, race and what phase the moon was and when it rose, all I have to do is go to the U.S. Naval Observatory site, website and, they, and punch in Poughkeepsie, New York on such and such a date and it will tell me when the sun came up, uh, when the moon came up, what phase it was in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of wonderful, you get a lot of wonderful detail now very easily. So uh, stuff like that too. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for writing a really engrossing history book. Thank you. And I didn't think it was a history book the whole time I was reading it. <laughs> I snuck that in. Just a quick question on Don Hume and the golden medal race. I yeah. couldn't quite... I'm not clear what exactly happened to him. I wonder if you could... Yeah. Did he pass out? Did he end up going? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I must have dropped the ball on that because I get that question almost every time. So clearly I, I didn't wrap things up with Don Yum. Uh, the basic story is that Don Yum, the stroke, when, as I said earlier, before the race was sick in bed, um, he had a respiratory uh, ailment of some kind and was running a fever, a fairly high fever. And actually, just to fill the story in a little bit... Um, the night before, the days before the race, leading up to the race, Albrechtson didn't think he could, Hume could row. Hume didn't think Hume could row. So Albrechtson had two substitutes with him, and he kept putting those two boys in at stroke position, and the boat just would not go the way they thought it should go. So the night before the gold medal race, the, the other eight kids went to Albrechtson. This is very unusual because they basically confronted him, and they said, Coach, you have to put Hume in the boat. Tie him in if you have to. We'll prop him up. He's got to be in the boat. Um, and so they did. They almost literally, I mean, they, they took him to the shell house the next day. They stretched him out on a training table. And they helped him into the boat. And he was all but out of it for the first half of the race. He was just could not respond to Bobby Mock's commands. And nobody really knows, but he just, he couldn't explain it himself. He just snapped out of it. Something clicked in him, and he, he sat up about halfway through that race and started responding to, to Mock and started setting the stroke the way that Mock wanted it. And a series of things happened after that. But really, that was the critical moment at which that boat finally started to move. I don't know what happened. I mean, I don't know the exact um, uh, illness that he had uh, I do know that the gold medal seemed to cure him. Uh, <laughs> I know that two days later he was in Berlin drinking beer and chasing Fräuleins. Uh, so from a diary entry that they that they had. So uh, he got better quickly. <laughs> yes. Uh, I very much enjoyed the book and thank you for writing it and telling the story. Um, so obviously the hero or the villain of the story is Germany and Hitler, but a minor villain is Lula. So if you could talk a little bit about writing about her. Yeah, that was kind of painful, actually. There were a lot of tears involved in that from various family members. Thula was Joe's um, stepmother. And um, for those of you who haven't read the book, I don't, I, I don't quite know how much I should give away. But um, she was very, I'm, I won't get too detailed, but she was very indifferent to her stepson, Joe, 
and ultimately caused her father to leave him behind, to abandon him, after a series of times of banishing him from the household. Um, so I think maybe the question really is what her motive would have been. Um, and um, I, I, it's some element of speculation here, but I think what it was was that Joe represented um, um, Harry's previous marriage, Joe's father's previous marriage. He was a relic of that previous marriage. He and the piano that Joe, that Harry insisted on keeping were reminders of that previous marriage. And Thula just didn't want anything around that reminded her or Harry of that previous marriage, and Joe was one of those things. So, I mean, talking to family members, that's what it sounds like happened. Um, but it was pretty cold, what she did. Yes? Um, I'm really glad you read that passage because um, it's my favorite passage when he starts out and starts naming the people that they should be rowing for. And I actually like, <laughs> teared up when I was reading that. I just think that's great. Um, I wanted to ask, it almost seems like the boys in the boat are too good to be true. And one of them smokes, but that's about the only yeah. vice that they have, it yeah. seems. And I'm just wondering if you made any choices about that because of these overall themes that you're laying out about you, the generation. You know, I didn't have to. I sort of expected to have to make choices like that. The fact is, I, I never came across anything in talking to all these relatives. Well, that's not quite true. One of the boys later had trouble in his life with alcohol, much later in his life. And I'm not going to tell you which one it was because I don't think it has anything to do with the story. Um, but in terms of the contemporary uh, time period of the story, they just were really nice kids. I mean, they were really wholesome kids. Uh, I, I turned their lives inside out trying to understand them. And um, I mean, they may have, may have had secrets, <laughs> but uh, they were just really honest, wholesome, good bunch of kids as far as I can tell. Um, could you talk a little bit about Adolf Hitler's reaction to the nine boys in the boat? Yeah, um, there's only there's a little bit of grainy footage. Um, there's no there's no written account of what how he reacted, but there's a little bit of grainy footage of um, during one of these five races that the German crews won uh, that that afternoon. <laughs> there's this really pretty funny uh, film of, of um, Hitler sort of rocking back and forth like this in time with the stroke of the German boat and Goebbels is patting Goering on the back and one of them sort of jumping up and down. They're obviously really into this. Um, this is during the German victory. Um, all I know about is that after the, uh, when the American victory was announced, the crowd which had been chanting Deutschland, Deutschland, Deutschland fell silent suddenly. Um, because they didn't know. It was a very close finish. Um, so that was a surprise. And then all I know was an account that the, the, the um, Hitler and company turned around and disappeared into the boathouse. Um, they didn't, what I do know is they didn't come down and congratulate the American. They had come down and congratulated this sequence of German boys who'd won all these uh, five uh, gold medals. Uh, and they didn't come down and congratulate the American boys. So... You know, I, that's just the historical fact. I can't say any more than that about it, I, his motives, but that was what happened. How were the boys introduced to uh, rowing as an athletic endeavor? Yeah. 
they didn't, as I said, they didn't know a thing about rowing when they got there. Well, one of them had rowed a rowboat uh, recreationally during the summer, and he probably had to unlearn a good deal of uh, when it got into a shell. Um, they started from scratch. I mean, they started, they had to, um, first they rowed on this old barge-like thing called Old Nero. It was just a flat platform that they had to row on. And they they started off that fall of 33 with 200 kids, and they had to whittle it down to not eight, but about 16, uh, 16 to 20 to make uh, the final sort of cut. And um, so it was extremely competitive, and they've dropped like flies uh, that fall, as they do every fall. It got cold. A lot of the kids that went down there didn't know what they were getting into. And as soon as it started getting cold out on Lake Washington and that wind started to blow, uh, they just, a lot of them just took off. So, uh, and this happened every year, probably still happens every year. A lot of them dropped out the, after the first month or so of it. But they learned to row at Washington. They learned from Albrechtson. Uh, Washington has a long tradition, actually, of spawning great uh, rowing coaches. They have, uh, I could list them, there's a long list of, of prominent rowing coaches that have come out of Washington. So they know their stuff, and they knew them then. Yeah. I was really curious about um, after they won and they came back home, some of them were still undergraduates. I guess the majority of them were. And, you know, what they were welcomed, obviously, at first, but I was wondering what their experience at school and just in the in the Washington area was. I mean, they must have been huge celebrities. You know, they weren't. I mean, they they would have been if circumstances had been different, I think. But when they got back, first of all, they came back to Seattle in dribs and drabs. They didn't all come back on one train for various reasons. So there was no ticker tape parade or civic celebration, as there had been a year before when they just beat Cal down in California. They had literally a ticker tape parade in Seattle. There was nothing for the gold medal. And it was partly because they came back in dribs and drabs, and it was partly because um, they're just... um, uh, they had to find jobs. They had to go about the business immediately of figuring out how they were going to stay in school for one more year. Um, most of them were juniors that year. A couple of them were sophomores. So they, just the practical realities of trying to survive in the Depression, they immediately started looking for work. And the story, I mean, you ask Seattleites of a certain generation, and they have heard the story. It was talked about uh, in the day. But it never really gained a lot of provenance um, uh, until until the book, actually. We have time for two more questions, and then we'll have a book signing up the front. In any way, has that boat been preserved? Oh, yes. It's a holy relic. <laughs> uh, it the the husky clipper, which is a gorgeous thing, um, hangs in the modern day uh, Washington Shell House over the dining commons, and it's suspended from thin wires, and it, this light floods in from off the lake and bathes it in a sort of glow, and it's just it's just absolutely gorgeous, uh, suspended up there. And actually, almost every year when they bring the freshmen uh, recruits in, not well recruits these days and walk-ons also. When people turn out for freshmen, turn out every fall, one of the first things the coaches do is point up at that shell and start telling the story of the 36 crew as sort of 
this is the legacy. This is what you want to become part of this, this legacy. So yeah, it's a very revered object. Yeah. It is a beautiful thing. All right, then. Well, thank you all very much. Oh, I'm sorry. There is a question. That's fine. Just if there were no other questions, I'd like to reinforce your comment about the coaches. I have a son who's a collegiate rower, and we were just out in Seattle competing this spring. And Luke McGee, their assistant coach, was just named the U.S. uh, Olympic men's coach for 2016 Rio. And then interestingly, after the regatta, all of the the, uh, rowers introduced themselves with their uh, home and uh, and major, and um, you know several kids from Germany on the team now. Right, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, Luke actually was one of the people that helped me a lot. He took me out in the freshman coat uh, launch with the freshmen several years. They're they're all seniors or graduated by now. But um, uh, and he read the manuscript and was uh, the the coaches at Washington were very helpful uh, with the book. They were very. Not surprisingly, they're very supportive of it, um, and uh, it gave me a lot of insight. Um, so big thanks to them. All right, well, thank you all very much. <laughs>